If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 5. Uh, Mark chapter 5, we are picking up right where we left off last week. We'll be uh, reading in, in verse 21 in just a moment. Uh, Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, is, is where we're headed. Um, so as you're turning there, I'll, I'll just share uh, this whole social distancing thing that, that we've maybe begun to grow accustomed to is, is strange. It's just a little bit weird, right? It has taken some getting used to. It is strange to meet someone new and not shake their hand. It's strange to see a good friend and not give them a hug. It's strange to talk to someone six feet away, right? It's a little strange. It's strange to be scattered all around this room like we are right now. You know, although I'm sure at least for a few people, you're well accustomed to maybe sitting as far back as you can, but it's strange to to be like all of this. It's strange to keep distance from others. But I was thinking this week, and there is at least one experience in life that I think might have helped prepare us for this moment. It's the elementary school playground. Because long before this time of social distancing, boys and girls on the playground were social distancing, right? They were keeping apart from one another. And it wasn't because of COVID, but rather another um, insidious sort of infection called cooties, right? Right? Boys and girls were very used to staying away from each other for fear of getting cooties, you know, what? oh no, what's going to happen? Now, now, fortunately, just like with COVID, there was a helpful vaccine in case you did come into contact with a girl or a boy, circle, circle, dot, dot, now you've got the cootie shot, right? It, you know, whenever I remember those times, you know, and apparently that made you immune so you could freely roam about the playground. And apparently that shot did wear off somewhere around middle school dance time, you know, people stand on the wall, but that's a whole other story. Now, now we can chuckle about children and adolescents and that sort of thing, but I, I think we all know that there have often been some walls up between men and women, long past elementary and middle school, Right? Whether it's various expectations that have been placed on you, or maybe some way that you've been included or excluded because you're either a man or a woman, it seems to some degree like cooties might still plague us a little. But our passage today is going to show us that that Jesus is not afraid of cooties. Uh, Over the past few weeks, We've been looking at stories from the Gospel of Mark that show us how Jesus breaks boundaries and brings about transformation. So two weeks ago, we read about how Jesus reached out and touched an unclean leper and sent him back to the Jewish temple to be restored Last week, we read about how Jesus goes into this Gentile territory called the Gerasenes, the Decapolis, to free a man from an unclean spirit. And then he sends him back to his own community for restoration. And today, in our passage, we're going to read 
about once more, Jesus encounters not one, but two unclean people. One of them is a woman, and the other one is a young girl. And once again, Jesus brings about restoration and transformation. See, Jesus comes for for Jews and Gentiles. He comes for men and women. And so let's read together. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the in the boat to the other side of the sea, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. And then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians, had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately, Aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him, the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was about 12 years of age. And at this, they were overcome 
with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and for all that you do to reach out and bring healing. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together today, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this passage that we're reading here picks up right where we left off last week. You know, Jesus has left the Gerasenes, and he's headed back across the sea into Galilee. And we can see immediately, unlike the Gerasenes who had sent Jesus away, Jesus is met here by crowds of people who are pressing in on him, right? And he is quickly approached by the leader of the synagogue, this local community leader who needs his help. Now, the way that Mark tells this story is brilliant, right? He begins with this encounter uh, with Jairus about his daughter. And then on the way, there's another encounter with the woman. And, And then finally, Jesus does arrive with Jairus to his daughter. Now, Mark shares these two encounters together in a style that a lot of scholars like to call a Markan sandwich. I just love when scholars make up terms like that. But this is something that Mark does a few times. Right? Throughout his gospel, he, he'll tell one story, he'll start a story, and then along the way, there's another story that occurs, and then finally he'll fit, wrap up that first story that he opened. It's like a sandwich, right? And, and telling stories in this way joins the two stories together so that the themes that they share are brought out even more. And this is what Mark does uh, to try to, he links these two stories together. He says, pay attention, right? You can't read these stories apart from one another. And the two stories that we have just read today do share a number of themes with one another. We've already pointed out that both stories center around female characters. Jesus is is reaching out toward this woman and this young girl, granting dignity and, and care for them. Also, both stories have an element of uncleanness, just like the other stories that we've been looking through throughout this series. And we'll look more at that in, in just a moment. Another couple of themes that we find in these stories are themes of shame and faith. These are things that that arise. So I want to consider each one of these this morning and dig into them. There's the boundary of uncleanness that we see. There's the experience of shame. And then there's the power of faith in the midst of it all. And so first, some of the boundaries of uncleanness in these stories. Just like the last couple of weeks, these stories have these elements of what is unclean within them. Remember, we've said the book of Leviticus is a really helpful companion to the book of Mark. 
It helps us kind of understand the background of what all is going on. Uh, and, and so the, the book of Leviticus, chapters 11 through 15, uh, set out all of these understandings for what's kind of considered unclean, whether it's culturally or, or socially or, or whatever the case. And this is behind all these stories that Mark is telling. So last week, we learned, we talked about how coming into contact with a dead body makes someone unclean. Someone becomes unclean when they come into contact. We saw that with the man who came out of the tombs to see Jesus. This man was unclean. He was living in the tombs. And this week, Jesus comes into contact with another dead body. The body of this young little girl. And her body and and the room that she was in would have been considered unclean. For Jesus to even step into that space he would become unclean. And yet that's where he goes. He doesn't keep back or stay away. He goes right to her. He enters her room. He takes her by the hand. And he wakes her from this sleep of death. And according to the law, Jesus would have become unclean from touching her, from setting foot in that room. But instead of Jesus becoming unclean. She is raised to life. She begins walking around and eating. She's fully recovered. This is some of these themes we've been talking about, how how Jesus is constantly pushing past these boundaries and bringing about life and transformation. Now, the other woman who Jesus comes into contact with in this story is also someone who would be considered unclean. Leviticus 15 describes how a woman's monthly period is considered unclean. And it goes on to say that should that continue with some sort of disorder beyond the normal amount of time, well, she remains unclean until it comes to an end. And so this woman, everything she touches and everyone she touches would be considered unclean unclean for at least the rest of the day, if not for a whole week. And in addition to this, Leviticus 15 also addresses all kinds of other sort of bodily discharges that are considered unclean. There's a whole list of them. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of different reasons for this, whether cultural or social or religious, but I think at least one of the reasons as we think about these things is psychological. You know, another partner we've sort of had in conversation as we've been looking through the series is a psychologist from Abilene Christian University named Richard Beck, who wrote a book called Unclean, where he explores the psychology of disgust. And we've been reflecting on that along with these passages. And one of the realms that he identifies that often triggers disgust is food. We reflected on that a couple of weeks ago, uh, the disgust we encounter at finding a hair in our soup, or or if you were to find a fly in your salad, or something like that, right? These are disgusting experiences, and there's nothing particularly disgusting about hair, or even a fly if it's where it's supposed to be. But the moment that it comes into contact with your food, it's all kinds of disgusting, right? 
you know, the, the hair is disgusting, the fly is disgusting, the food is disgusting. It all becomes unclean. This is how disgust works. So food is one of those areas where disgust is easily triggered. But there's another one that, that Richard Beck points out. Bodily discharges. Disgusting. Even just the word, the phrase. Ooh, right? Spit. Sweat. Urine. Blood. Any of these. You just, ew. Right? Any of these easily start to trigger a disgust response. And he calls this kind of disgust animal reminder disgust. Because bodily fluids and, and discharges uh, remind us of our animal nature. Reminds us that we have bodies, right? That we're just like animals in many ways. And on a much deeper level, these substances remind us of our own mortality. Blood is disgusting because it reminds us of death. It reminds us that we will die someday. And so we have this natural, ugh, keep, keep me away from I don't want to think about that. I mean, as a society, we send stuff like this off to hospitals uh, and other places to deal with them so we don't have to deal with it in our regular spaces, in, in our regular life. We don't have to confront this, this sort of built-in fear that we have of death. We exile all of these reminders of death as unclean because we don't want to think about it. They disgust us. So this is what Jesus confronts in this story. There's not only the actual death of this young girl, but the reminder of death from the flowing blood of this woman. But in the story, Jesus doesn't push them away. He doesn't exile them. He confronts death head on. Jesus confronts the reminder of death and the woman's bleeding. He confronts the reality of death as he reaches toward this little girl. These stories that Mark tells are just hints of the greater story that Mark is telling. I mean, the, the whole gospel of Mark is about Jesus confronting death. And he does so in part with this woman and the little girl, but he goes to the root of it at the cross, where he himself experiences death. And in each of these cases, whether it's these smaller stories or the bigger story that Mark is telling about Jesus heading toward the cross, in every single case, death loses. Death doesn't win. Right? Jesus doesn't become unclean from this woman. Instead, she is healed. And the little girl is raised. Jesus dies on the cross, but death does not get the final word. Right? This is what Mark is impressing upon us as we reflect on these stories and this reality of uncleanness that Jesus constantly confronts and transforms. Now, the cross in these stories are about confronting death in a way, but they're also about confronting something else. 
that is perhaps even more sinister, and that's shame. You see, shame can actually be a, a kind of living death in a lot of ways. Shame keeps us frozen. It keeps us paralyzed. Shame causes us to, to withdraw, remove ourselves from others. A psychiatrist named Kurt Thompson has written an, an entire book about shame. Uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's this sort of psychological and neurological and spiritual understanding of, of what all shame does to us. And one of the things that he observes is the difference between shame and guilt. These are very different experiences. He explains, researchers have described shame as a feeling that is deeply associated with a person's sense of self. Guilt, on the other hand, emerges as a result of something I've done. So guilt is something I feel because I have done something bad. But shame is something I feel because I am bad. Do you see the difference? See the difference between these two? Guilt has to do with actions. Shame has to do with identity. You can apologize for and, and even change your actions. But you can't really change your identity. Not on a fundamental level. You can hide, you can cover it up, you can pretend to be someone else. But really, that only intensifies shame. It doesn't remove it or heal it. Only God can do that. Only God can transform and, and, and remove our shame. And this is what Jesus has come to do. To show us that, that our identity at a fundamental level is beloved children of God regardless of anything that we've done or haven't done. We are loved deeply and dearly by God. This is what Jesus comes to show us. He, he doesn't only come to forgive our guilt. Jesus comes to remove our shame. That's what Jesus comes to do. Now, another thing that Kurt Thompson describes in this book about shame is the way that shame expresses itself the way that it presents itself. Because though it's this internal experience of identity, shame primarily expresses itself externally in relationships. See, because we feel shame, we tend to withdraw. We tend to remove ourselves from others. We tend to cut off relationships. And he explains that Actually, relationships are, are the only way that shame can be healed. And so by removing ourselves, by withdrawing, by hiding, shame is only perpetuated and deepened. He writes, The healing of shame begins and ends with the experience of being known. The healing of shame begins and ends with the experience of being known. Healing shame requires our being vulnerable with other people. 
There is no other way. You see, shame can only be healed through relationship. Shame can only be healed through the experience of being known. And this is exactly what we see unfold in Jesus' interaction with this woman. Not much needs to be said about how shame was likely playing a deep role in this woman's life. Because she is not merely sick. She is facing chronic illness. And it's not just any illness. It is a deeply personal and private illness. One that has made her unclean for 12 years. 12 years. And over the course of all of this time, it has taken everything from her. I mean, I mean, look at verse 26. It says she had endured much under many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but only grew worse. I mean, her condition has taken her health. It's taken her possessions. It continues to take her life. It set her on the margins of society and even her spiritual community. And yet somehow, in all of this, she has not completely lost hope. After the extreme hopelessness of that verse, verse 26, verse 27 is startling. And it shows the power of just who Jesus must be. And all that Jesus comes to offer, it says, when she heard about Jesus, she came to him. And after touching him, she was healed. It's amazing. But what happens next? What happens after this? You see, Jesus does not settle for merely healing her sickness. He wants to heal her shame. And shame is only healed through the experience of being known. So what does he ask? Jesus says, who touched me? Who touched my clothes? And Jesus isn't asking this because he doesn't know, right? I mean, he has the power to heal her. He has the awareness to, to even know that this power has, has moved from him to heal her. He knows who she is. But he asked this question to invite her into vulnerability and out of shame. He invites her into the experience of being known. This is very similar to what we see happen in Genesis 2. Jesus, uh, God comes walking through the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned, and he asks, where are you? He's not asking because he doesn't know where they are. He's God. But he asks as an invitation, out of shame. But Adam and Eve hid, and when they did come out, they lie, and they start pointing fingers at each other because of their shame. But look, this woman, when Jesus calls to her, she does respond. She does come out of hiding. In verse 33, it says, she doesn't lie or point fingers. She tells him the whole truth. 
Now, the dramatic tension is palpable here. It says she tells him the whole truth with fear and trembling. Because technically, this encounter has made Jesus unclean. And there is every reason for her to be cast out and just shamed all the more. And so how is Jesus going to respond? Well, in verse 34, he says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. And with these words, Jesus confirms the healing of her sickness, but he also continues the healing of her shame. He speaks words of dignity and love. She has come out. She has made herself known. She has become vulnerable. And Jesus speaks words of grace to her. Your faith has made you well. And this leads us to the final theme that we see uniting these two stories. Because there's one other thing at the core of each of these stories, and that is faith. You know, at the end of this encounter with the woman, Jesus acknowledges her faith. And then in the very next breath, he encourages faith for Jairus. You know, after hearing that his daughter had died, that Jairus' daughter had died, Jesus turns to him and encourages him, do not fear, only believe. And this is the same word. The word faith and the word believe are the very same word in Greek. And ultimately, this word has to do with trust. The woman trusted Jesus, and that's what led her to, to seek him out, to reach toward him for healing. And now, Jesus encourages Jairus to trust him and not to fear. This is the power of faith. It has the ability to move us out of shame and toward the experience of being known. But the lack of faith can be immobilizing. It can be paralyzing. I mean, look at what the people say in verse 35. It's a, they say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And then as Jesus continues and it heads toward the house, in verse 30 it says, they laugh. You know, they, they laugh at him. You see, lack of faith does not only doubt Jesus, it actually mocks him and, and seeks to prevent him from coming. Don't bother him anymore. Don't, there's no point. But lack of faith does not succeed. Because just like death does not have the last word, neither does doubt. Jesus is intent on bringing about the transformation of the kingdom of God. So he goes toward this unclean deathbed of the little girl. He reaches out and takes her hand and he speaks these words, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. And she rises, she begins walking around and Jesus asks him to give her food. This is what faith looks like. Trusting that Jesus has power over everything that is unclean. 
over our shame, and even over death itself. And so as, as we come to the end and, and, and reflect on all the things that this story brings up, I, I want to ask some questions for us to think about. As Jesus reaches toward us, as Jesus offers us healing and cleansing, I want to ask, where are the places where there is shame in your life? What are the, the, the places that, that cause you to withdraw, to, to become distant, to not be known? You know, that reaction to withdraw is very natural, but it will only intensify that shame and make you even further away from what you really desire. Love, being known. What are those places? How can we bring them forth for healing? Bring them forth to Christ. Bring them forth to one another in relationship. I think another question that's worth considering is what are the places that look or feel dead? Places where there's just not much hope. You know, I think it's really striking. They, they have a little bit of hope, right? They have enough hope to go seek out Jesus and say, hey, come, come touch my daughter and, and make her well. But at some point, they lose hope. You know, she, go, she crosses the line from sickness into death, and they say, oh, that's too much, that's too far. And I think that we often cross a similar line at some point. You know, we, we might have a little bit of hope, but at some point we think, oh, well, I've just I've gone too far. There's no more hope. This thing is, has crossed a line. There's no more hope. You know, this thing is as good as dead. Whether it's a part of our life, a dream, a desire, a community, what are the things that look dead to us? And I think Jesus challenges us and says, hey, it's not dead, it's sleeping. It's only asleep. My word brings life. What are those places? It could be the church. It could be your own faith. It could be any number of things. It just feels too far out of reach. And Mark is telling us nothing is too far for Jesus to reach. No amount of uncleanness, no amount of shame, not even death itself is out of Jesus' reach. If only we can trust him and have faith. And so how can trusting Jesus in the midst of whatever that shame or that death is bring about transformation? What does that look like for us as a community, as individuals? Jesus is calling us into life, and it's life that doesn't make any sense. It's peace that passes understanding. It's not just life, it's resurrection. Life out of death. 
And so my prayer for us as, as we consider these things and, and continue moving with Jesus, letting Jesus touch us and heal us as we continue to reach toward him in faith, my prayer is that Jesus would continue to break into our lives and bring about transformation. That Jesus would, would cleanse us and renew our trust in him. Trust that moves us to reach out toward him, reach out toward others around us. This faith can transform and bring life. May it be so. Amen.